Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here with David Scott. David, it never rains but it pours and I'm not just talking about the Sydney weather over the past month. No, or today. Uh, and uh, before I get, oh, g'day Paul by the way, um, yeah, before I start uh, everyone listening at home, if I say it a bit jaded, it's because I've had no lunch, I've been going since about 5am this morning, so it's been a very busy day. Yeah, and it's funny, um, we were just talking a couple of days ago about how markets had become quite dull um, in recent weeks. Um, but that all changed uh, overnight. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Fed. We're going to talk about Australian employment data. Uh, we are going to talk about portfolio di- diversification. And I will say up front that uh, none of what we are going to say on this show should be construed as investment advice um, because we are not financial advisors. And if you're um, going to ask for that kind of stuff, you should talk to somebody who really knows what they're talking about and is legally allowed to do so. Um, our guest this week on the show, um, where we're going to talk about all that stuff, uh, is Jordan Alessio, who's Chief Economist at ABC Bullion, which is um, Australia's leading precious metals and bullion specialist. Uh, it's been far too long, Jordan, since we uh, had, since you last joined us on the show. And in fact, you joined us for the very first episode. I did indeed. I uh, had a great time back then and looking forward to today, gents. Thanks for having me back. Jordan's a great economist and analyst, um, analyst and he's uh, able to talk uh, really straight about gold, including when it comes to the particular type of investor out there who thinks you should own nothing but bullion. Uh, Jordan, it's great to have you back. Um, now, look, ABC actually presses some of its own bullion, right? And you store it as one of the other things uh, you do, and you've brought some of it with you. Look at that. Yeah, that's right, uh, Paul. I thought I'd bring up a, uh, a kilo bar, which is worth just over fifty thousand Australian dollars today. So, hang on, I'm just going to drop it off the desk from about two inches. Here we go. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> Sorry to Rick, our producer. There, he's going to have to probably fix that. Um, yeah, look at this thing. Uh, it's about the size of an old iPhone four. That's right, uh, and it weighs a kilo. Uh, amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so um, how much of this um, do you guys produce a year? Do you know at the moment? Well, Australia produces about three hundred tons of gold every year, so it's about fifteen billion Australian dollars worth. Where Australia is the second largest um, producer in, in the world, behind China. Um, and uh, yeah, ABC Bullion or, or our refining arm, ABC Refinery, is the, the largest independent refinery in Australia. Um, and then obviously ABC Bullion, who I work for. Um, we work with all of the investors and clients that are that are buying bullion and, and provide all the storage and logistics as well. And I think it's interesting that Australia refines more gold now than it um, than it than it mines. Yeah, that's right. So one of the obviously interesting things in the commodity space is is most of our commodities get exported in their raw form, and the value add work occurs overseas. Um, gold's a bit unique in that. All of the gold that we produce in Australia, um, as well as gold that's produced in New Zealand and other parts of Asia, actually gets refined here. So there's a real sort of manufacturing story around that as well. And then obviously it, it goes into financial services as well. 
Yeah, uh, and I, could, I should just point out that uh, Dave's just been trying uh, a few bicep curls over there. <laughs> need, need to go now, work out the muscles. It's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go quickly to some of the news. Um, I think we need to start with the Australian employment data. We were expecting another. This report has gotten kind of fairly predictable, you know. Um, over the last six months, what we've seen typically is the economy adds several thousand jobs, um, somewhere between five and 15,000. Um, and uh, overwhelmingly, it tends to be uh, part-time jobs, but it tends to be overall going up, um, adding net jobs. Uh, we were expecting an additional 16,500 jobs uh, this month, um, but what we saw was what uh, JP Morgan described as an unambiguously weak result. Uh, 4,500 jobs lost last month. Now, that may not sound like a, a, an awful lot when we've got 11 million, uh, around 11 million people in the, in the whole workforce. 12 million. 12 million people in the whole workforce. Uh, thanks, Dave. Um, but um, uh, going backwards, sign that the labour market is weakening, and all of a sudden we're back with the unemployment rate at 5.9%. Dave, what did you make of it? Well, I did think it was very weak. And of course, uh, usual disclaimers around the uh, ABS's seasonally adjusted figures must apply here. So take everything with a slight grain of salt, if you would. But uh, yeah, we had uh, full-time jobs as the one bright spot, but uh, and that, that increased by over 20,000. But that was merely partially reversing a, an even bigger drop of about 44,000 the month before. Uh, hours worked fell. Underemployment when it hit a record high. Youth under, underemployment uh, hit a record high. So people who are in employment but looking for more hours they're, uh, they're sitting at uh, the highest levels in record at the moment. Um, yeah, all throughout the, uh, the report, just a whole lot of uh, no, worrying trends. Yet again, I think uh, most of the, uh, the employment growth was concentrating in Victoria. Elsewhere in the country, it's very, very weak. And I saw one extraordinary figure, actually, um, that you highlighted to me, which is that uh, um, you know, in terms of youth unemployment, uh, people between 15 and 24 uh, years of age who want a job but can't get one, that number is around 270,000 people now, uh, which seems um, worryingly high uh, and obviously something that, you know, um, it, it needs a close look. It is high. Uh, it has been higher in the past, mind you. Uh, but the, the key thing is there's a distinctive shift down you know, in the participation level between 15 to 24-year-olds who are defined as, as, as youth uh, in Australia. Uh, and that might partly reflect that more people are now studying, but it also reflects that perhaps things are so bad out there that they can't go and actually find any jobs, so they go and give up. Uh, and that's obviously a very troubling thing if that's actually occurring. I think the, the story around youth unemployment has actually been deteriorating for, for pretty much the entire decade. It, it never really got the bounce back that overall employment figures did in the aftermath of the GFC. Um, and I, I actually think that the, the result today, while it probably caught the market by surprise, it really is just a continuation of this trend of soft unemployment and, and, and wage growth levels and the like, which have been plumbing new record lows almost you know, at every single read or every single update we get. Macquarie actually had some research out a couple of months ago where they plotted the Australian unemployment rate, but they factored in the same participation rate and the same hours mm. worked. So they, they basically stripped out what had happened there and they found that by the end of last year that the real unemployment rate in Australia was basically 8% and trending higher, not sort of 58 and trending lower, which is what the market has been pricing interest rate expectations and everything around. So I actually think what we've seen today is, is, is it sort of strips back the, the reality that's been there the whole time. We've just sort of forgotten about it over the last few months. 
Which is why, um, you know, it leads me nicely onto this, uh, the question now for, for the RBA. Look, they've signaled that rates will be on hold for a considerable, um, uh, for the foreseeable future, right? Um, but with a surprise, surprisingly bad number like that, um, as I said earlier, as I mentioned earlier, if we had another two or three reports like this, maybe that conversation might have to start changing, which then feeds into the interest rate outlook. Um, and one of the reasons that they've been that they've been reluctant uh, to um, cut interest rates further, in fact, the reason that they've been reluctant to cut interest rates further is avoiding pouring more fuel on the fire of these very hot housing markets in, in Sydney and Melbourne. Housing affordability uh, is increasingly becoming very hot, um, not just political issue, I suppose in the classic sense, but a policy issue um, you know, across the board. So for, for policymakers in, in uh, for monetary policymakers um, and obviously uh, uh, public policymakers. Um, and the government this week all of a sudden talking about Dave being able to access your super uh, to put down a deposit on a house. Of course. More demand to the housing market. That sounds like a perfectly fine solution to go and uh, address housing affordability. Yeah, uh, when when demand, they keep talking about supply being the problem. Hitch another engine onto the uh, onto onto the demand side. Uh, Jordan, um, I heard you mention earlier that you, you've got an interesting take on this. Yeah, I do. So I suppose if we talk about housing affordability, if we want to loop back to the RBA, we can later. But my view is they'll be forced to cut without without question this year. Um, first things first. It's really interesting that. It was around about this time last year that the ALP came out and spoke about limiting negative gearing um, and grandfathering it for the existing investors. Um, and at the time, I remember sort of making a comment that this is actually going to bring forward a whole heap of housing demand. Definitely. Because anyone worried that they're going to miss out on a future tax break is going, yeah. to, lock, is going to lock in now. And um, you know, one of your other regulars, uh, Pete Wargent, he actually had a chart which showed the change in year-on-year investor lending growth. And you know, he plotted when that, that policy announcement from the ALP came out. And it basically went, it's gone from minus 20% year-on-year to plus 20% year-on-year now. So you know, that's the impact that even talking about policy changes can have on the housing market. Look, when it comes to superannuation and investing in housing, First comment I'd make is I agree with Dave 100%. From the point of view of will it make homes more affordable? No. So if we're going to limit the discussion to that, it's a terrible idea and we shouldn't do it. But I think we've got to consider this from a broader perspective. First things first, Australian superannuation funds are already invested in housing, either directly or indirectly through funding our banks. Secondly, if you look at the self-managed super fund sector, which is now the largest individual component of the superannuation market, SMSFs are already allowed to buy property, right? An investment property in their super fund. Now, I was actually speaking to the guys at Digital Finance Analytics about this, and they've basically came back and said, look, 70%, roughly 70% of SMSF trustees own their own home. 40% of them own an investment property outside of super, and they're allowed to use their super fund to buy another investment property. The home ownership rates for people 25 to 34, 35 to 44 are much, much lower than that. So as it stands right now, we're saying to these younger people, you're not allowed to use your super fund to have any exposure to the Aussie housing market, but older Australians who are far wealthier and already own property, we're saying play on, buy as much as you like. So there's a much bigger policy discussion that needs to take place. It's incredibly hypocritical, isn't it? 
it is very hypocritical. It's uh, the same on one, one side that one group can go and do it through superannuation, but then owner-occupiers can't go and do it on another. Well, essentially, Dave, you and I could both set up SMSFs tomorrow, yeah. buy investment properties and rent them to each other. There's, there's nothing stopping us doing that. Um, I'd, I'll charge you a good price too. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I get your, uh, do you have a take, uh, um, like what's your, your thinking on what's going to happen to the housing market this year? Because, um, so, uh, we, we published some stuff this week talking about the, how on a lot of measures, um, the, the, the housing in Australia is simply overvalued, but the conditions are not there yet. Um, perhaps for there's no catalyst for um, a significant downturn uh, in prices. Um, that's one view. Um, that was from uh, Shane Oliver, who's a guest on the podcast uh, and um, really excellent uh, commentator on on these matters. Um, what's your take on on the direction of the housing market as we get this big supply uh, funnel coming through um, in, in apartments in in the eastern uh, major cities? Yeah, I think um, I remember last time I was on this show, we were talking about housing, and we, you know, we discussed the fact that even back then, there is no such thing as the Australian housing market. There's Sydney and Melbourne as capital cities, and then there's the rest. Um, you know, a year plus later, that that is even more so the case. So, I would say the only major change between last time we were speaking about this and, and today is that there has been this enormous increase in supply of apartments in the capital city. So I think I'd agree with Shane that there's a bigger risk now around apartment investment, even in Sydney and Melbourne. But apart from that, I think we'll continue to see what we've seen over the last few years, which is Sydney and Melbourne basically operating within their own entirely sort of separate fundamentals to the, to the rest of the country. Um, and it's funny in terms of the impact that, that that has for the RBA, because there's already been analysis conducted around the country which sort of said, look, if you could set a cash rate for each state and each city independently, essentially outside of Sydney and Melbourne, cash rate should be sub 1%. And, and that's the balancing act the RBA's still got to, to, you know, got to work with. Yeah, that's right. Um, we can't have uh, you know um, specific uh, interest rates for um, you know cities, towns, uh, etc. Um, you know, when you get out to a, a, a an economy as diverse and broad as um, uh, as Australia, where you've got different parts of the um, economy, like particularly Sydney and Melbourne, the growth rate is very, very well reasonable. Uh, unemployment, uh, unemployment is very low. Um, I mean, they do not need uh, lower rates at the moment, right? In fact, if anything, you'd be looking at thinking, particularly the way, say, uh, things like prices for things like construction, etc., have gone over the last couple of years. It's been um, relatively, uh, you've seen price rises there, whereas in other parts of the country, particularly Western Australia, um, house prices falling, unemployment climbing, um, all of that kind of thing. Um, and obviously the RBA has, has got to you know, try and find some way of balancing all of this. I, I think they're very much trying to pass the baton to APRA regarding you know, limiting investor loan growth, and that will implicitly be Melbourne and Sydney focused because these are the two markets that are drawing in all the investment dollars. So I think, I think the RBA is, is crying out for APRA to step up to the plate, and as soon as they do, it won't take long for rates to come down. Yeah, they, they, yeah that, that depends. Like, of what APRA does, RBA has hamstrung themselves by cutting rates last year. Now, they're doing it for the right reasons, but the unintended consequence, you've had this huge increase in Sydney and Melbourne property prices over that period, funneled predominantly by a lot of investor activity as well. Uh, and it's made it so that the broader Australian economy, which is crying out for the need for lower interest rates, more stimulus, can't get it because of those two cities. So it comes down to APRA 
there's already, you know, you've seen banks are lifting interest rates at the moment. Only today we had the National Australia Bank when lift owner-occupier and investor uh, interest rates on mortgages. So there's signs that there's, there's something is afoot, but I think there's still more work to be done. I don't want to see house prices crash. I don't want to see house prices fall. I want to see a nice steady period where you have flatline, and that's where you've got to have the regulator come in. And if they're serious about reducing these risks, just go and make the policy mix right so it contains the risk in the Sydney and Melbourne property markets whilst allowing the RBA and monetary policy to do its job, which is to go and support activity in the broader Australian economy. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, it's going to be continue to be, I think we'll, every week we'll need to come back to this and talk about where we're up to. I think the NAB development uh, today is very interesting. CBA yesterday as well, uh, raising um, rates on uh, investor loans uh, pretty significantly. Um, so there's a lot, lots happening and um, there uh, will be lots to talk about it in the shows ahead. Uh, one of the things obviously that would help the RBA uh, in this situation would be a lower dollar, but uh, this morning we got up and um, Australia awoke to find the Australian dollar back at 77 cents. Um, uh, Dave, uh, the Fed, do you want to take us through it? I'm just thinking to myself, you know, some people like woke up to see it at 77 cents, some people saw it go there. <laughs> Like myself, uh, probably explains why I'm rambling. Um, oh, look, the Fed delivered, in my opinion, an absolute masterclass in central bank policy. Uh, it's rare that I'd go and lavish such praise on a central bank, and I have been critical of the Fed in the past, as of a lot of other people. But they primed the market so much to go and expect this interest rate hike, they completely got it priced in. And then what they did on the day is they did what they, everyone expected. They hiked interest rates, but they didn't go and get aggressive on the, any of their language. They didn't go and up their, uh, their forecasts. They actually took heat out of the US dollar. They went and saw treasury yields go and pull back a bit. Uh, and markets loved it. You know, we saw Wall Street was having another joyous day and everything else. Absolute masterclass. But it was a very interesting pattern across markets. We were just saying with this before, you know, um, uh, stocks rallied. Bonds rallied, gold rallied, the Aussie dollar rallied, right? So one of these kids is doing his own thing, kind of thing, right? So what's your take on, on, so, um, there's, there's a lot of layers here. So let's unpick this some a bit, um, a little bit. So there's the inflation outlook, the growth outlook, um, uh, but also then the, um, what this does for demand for gold. Um, do you want to start with the gold, maybe? Yeah, sure. Well, it, it's it's funny. I, I woke up and I actually checked the Aussie dollar gold price first thing in the morning rather than the US dollar. So I almost thought for a second, oh, maybe they didn't hike. And then <laughs> I, I, I obviously was expecting that they would and then obviously looked at the gold price in, in US, which was up 20 bucks an ounce or thereabouts, but then obviously the Aussie dollar had, had rallied too. So... Um, yeah, I mean, the Fed gets, I suppose, 10 out of 10 for keeping everyone happy for, for 24 hours at least. Um, look, I, I think in terms of gold, you know, what, what you often find is that gold actually does very well when, when interest rates are, are, are moving higher. So, you know, even if you look between 2001 and 2007, which was a, you know, a sort of six-year period that the Fed was, was in a, a tightening phase... Gold basically went up by a factor of three, so it's no surprise to me to see gold prices do well as the Fed hikes, because the 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 bigger question is is of course what happens on the inflation front, um, and and all across the developed world, or, or at least in the northern hemisphere, um, both in Europe and in the United States, you can see inflation pressures start to build in. Um, interestingly enough, though, 
whilst people can see that coming through with headline CPI figures, a lot of the core numbers are still pretty weak. Um, and um, I was reading an, an update by um, Ardea uh, earlier this week who were looking at inflation expectations in the US. And, and currently the market is, is essentially not worried about inflation for the next 20 or 30 years. And their take from that was that, in essence, as a result of that, inflation-sensitive assets are cheaper than what they otherwise would be. And, of course, gold is you know, probably the ultimate inflation asset. So, you know, from my point of view, I think you know, rate hikes are, are no problem for gold, particularly if inflation pressures continue to build. So, Dave, uh, let's talk about then the bonds, right? So um, uh, bond, bonds rallies, so yields fell. Um, so there was a bit of a change in, in the Fed. So that there, not everything was priced in. So with this rally in bonds, do you want to talk us through that? Oh, the rally in bonds was fueled by, so the markets had started to go and get a belief that potentially the Fed might signal that they would go and tighten interest rates faster than what they indicated back in December. So they look at things like the, uh, the economic forecast projections for inflation and GDP growth. And in particular, they look at what's called the dot plot, the, the, the dots, uh, as it's known. And, uh, Instead of uh, indicating that they may go and tighten rates quicker than what they uh, first thought three months ago, uh, the median projection of all the members who sit on the FOMC uh, was basically unchanged. It was a small tweak, I think, in 2019 by uh, maybe 10 or 12 basis points high, but everything else was unchanged. And that scuttled all the, uh, all the, you know, the hopes that there may be four rate hikes this year or four rate hikes in 2018. And uh, as a consequence, you saw... Uh, U.S. Treasury yields, people were heavily short yields as well, uh, given the, uh, the, the sell-off we're seeing uh, in, in rates markets since Trump won the, uh, the election back in November. Uh, so yields fell, short, uh, so short covering uh, started, and then as a consequence, the U.S. dollar got thumped over 1%, which was a, a big move for the uh, U.S. dollar index in a particular day. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've had, we've been looking for this whole, um, there's been talk for a long time that this whole, um, you know, the 30 year, uh, bull market and bonds, uh, being over and that the, the sell off that we saw, it started, keep going back to this, but it started around about the middle of last year. There was first inklings of it. September, October gathered a little bit of pace. November, Trump wind just blew the top off it because of these inflationary policies. Um, that he had been talking about um, bringing. Um, some of the momentum came out of that uh, through uh, January, February. And if there was going to be a catalyst uh, for another sell-off, it might have been around about this time with the Fed meeting, but that, uh, Jordan, hasn't happened. Yeah, yeah so I think you know, the US 10-year, when I was looking today, was back around yeah 2.5, which is where it was in December. So you're right, it sort of had a bit of a that, that increase in yields kind of, it, it, it turned around for a couple of months there. You know, we're pretty close to, I think Bill Gross's Magonot line was 2.6, was I think, on the 10-year, and he sort of said all bets are off if it goes through there. Um, I think Jeff Gunlack was, was sort of closer to the 3% mark before he, he sort of really buys into the, you know, we've entered a full-blown bear market now. Um, look, I, I actually think yields will probably continue to come down. There's actually been a little bit of flattening across the curve lately as well, which has sort of got interesting implications for sort of growth and, and risk assets too. The, the one thing that's interesting that I was having a look this morning is the actual spread between Aussie and US 10 years now. Mm. And it's basically back to where it was at the start of the, the turn of the century when the currency was between, you know, 50 and 60, you know, rather than sort of 70 and 80 where it is now. Um, so I sort of think that that's a, an interesting thing for Australian investors to, to, to bear in mind. 
particularly if you think terms of trade are going to turn over and, and the RBA is going to have to cut again, which I certainly do, it, it sort of makes sense with that if you've got that view to want to internationalise a portion of your portfolio because uh, there's a pretty good chance the Aussie's going to have to come down a long way. Yep, look abroad. You're exactly right. No, commodity, the, the Aussie's done so well this year, predominantly because you've seen such a strong uplift in commodity prices yeah. in the uh, in the preceding period. If that was to go and falter and, uh, and say interest rates would go and stay the same or even narrow between Australia and, uh, and the US, there's only one way the Aussie's going and it's not higher. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Okay, we're going to talk uh, about spaceships. Well, um, uh, very current topic, uh, thanks to the arrival of a spaceship, a self-styled super fund for millennials. Um, and the topic that it leads us into nicely is portfolio diversification. And again, I want to stress, this isn't financial advice. Speak to your financial advisor. Um, so um, Spaceship is going to launch officially to the public. It'll come out of its beta phase at the end of this month. Um, done very well for themselves. Uh, they uh, said back in January that they had 50 mil um, under management. They're talking about um, when they come out of beta at the end of this month, there's going to be some launch party. Um, and they'll have 100 mil, right? Um, so 100 million, uh, good on them, great. Uh, number to get to, particularly when you're stepping out uh, into the market, it's, you know, kind of says that you're serious. Um, obviously, you know, in comparison to the industry funds and so, you know, multiple hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, some of them, uh, it's it's a small fund, uh, but it's a very very interesting one. And I think one of the things that it's kind of making superannuation great again. You know, uh, finally people are talking about hey. Where's the money in my super going to? And I think particularly young people for, you know, you try to get them engaged in this uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, it just, it's very difficult conversation to lead. However, you've got Mike Cannon-Brooks, the co-founder of Atlassian, out there publicly saying that, you know, he's going to tip his super into this um, from, you know, from launch. Uh, and I imagine Mike Cannon-Brooks has a fair deal of super. But there's this very, there's this great, you know, there's a lot of headlines on around, on around it. And I think, you know, like I said, we've been covering this from a range of angles. Um, a lot of people have a lot of questions about it too, right? Um, I think um, one of the other things that's helpful is that if this helps get the staid superannuation industry um, into taking a look at itself, how it communicates, how it positions itself to people, I think that will only be a very, very helpful thing. Um, but let's take a quick step back and talk about, Jordan, why it's important to have a diverse investment portfolio, particularly in your retirement savings. I think, let's start with the very, very fundamental basics on this. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone knows that you sort of shouldn't concentrate all your eggs in one basket. Um, I think that's the, you know, rule one of, of financial planning and, and, and sort of sensible investing. Um, so, look, I, I'd be cautious of anyone's investment portfolio or strategy that was you know, too heavily tilted towards, you know, bonds, cash, equities, gold even, or or tech stocks, which is obviously the, the spaceship models. Um, well, you know, their, their whole portfolio is not in tech stocks, but that's certainly the angle that they're using to a, a, attract attention. Um, so, look, I, I think the, the, the need for diversification is, is, is a very clear and obvious one, particularly in the kind of financial markets and economic environment we're in now, which has you know, basically never been more uncertain, you, you really want to have your, your, your money spread around. And so many things are connected. Correct. Um, so 
um, for example, how as the S and P goes off and the ASX will follow the next day, um, sure. The general sort of flow of uh, well, stock sentiment. Well, yeah, I think I mean cross asset correlations have been rising for really the last thirty years, and that you know that that increase in correlation has only become more extreme since the GFC hit. And since you know every financial market now hangs on the word of, of central bankers, so yeah, the, the need to achieve or try to achieve true diversification, it's never been more important. It's also probably never been more difficult, given given correlations. And obviously, gold fits um, importantly into um, the picture uh, because you would come across this um, a lot with your clients and, and so on in terms of sizing of um, gold holdings and so forth. Yeah, we we did a survey a couple of years ago of, of actually of our SMSF clients, and um, we found that. The, when we asked them sort of what percentage of their portfolio they were allocating to precious metals, by far the biggest answer we got or bucket that we were given was people were putting between 10 and 20% of their portfolio into precious metals, um, which is, you know, it's chunky relative to the overall industry average, which is less than 1% if we're, we're talking about the Aussie super industry as a whole. But, you know, if we're talking, let's say, 10 to 15%, you know, that means you've still got 85% of your money in income-producing assets, in, in, in shares and in bonds. So they've got enough gold to give real balance to the portfolio and have a great hedge, but they've also got enough of the, the more traditional stuff to, you know, benefit from income growth, economic growth, dividends, you name it. Sure. Because um, I, um, I had a look through um, some of the uh, SpaceX material. Uh, sorry, not SpaceX. It's a, a, a spaceship. Um, they have a Growth X product, uh, which is the, their high growth. And obviously, therefore, a risky uh, portfolio. But I'm just going to go down through. Here's the asset allocation. Um, five assets won't take me long. Cash, 2%. Australian fixed interest, 5%. Australian listed property, 6%. Australian shares, 40%. And international shares at an eye-watering 47%. Now, I want to um, compare that to... Here, this is from uh, ASFA's uh, summary for, for the December quarter. Um, the asset allocation for uh, superannuation funds um, around Australia... Um, and these are the funds that are not SMSFs. These are the sort of industry funds and, and, um, and uh, uh, privately run funds like Russell, etc. Australian listed shares in, in, those, in all of those funds are 23%. International shares are um, under half of what the GrowthX product from Spaceship allocates. International shares there are 22%. Um, cash at 12%. Um, and Australian fixed interest um, at 13% plus another 8% in, in global uh, bonds and other uh, uh, fixed interest um, products. So you can see there, I hope that illustrates the difference in the risk profile um, because basically, let's, um, let's face it, you know, if, um, with that allocation to international shares at almost 50% and then Australian shares at another 40%, um, if there is a big downturn in stocks, um, and there's been a lot of people talking for a long time about the S&P is due a pullback, uh, you're going to take a pretty big bath. Yeah. Um, what, what, so what is your take on how they've um, like assembled that portfolio? Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. I mean, obviously, it stands out in stark contrast to the, the overall stats that as for produce. But, but as you say, that's the entire super industry, including high growth funds, low growth funds, conservative funds, you name it. So if you were to, if you were to just look at the ASFA statistics for high growth portfolios, 
which is probably a more like-for-like -like comparison with what Spaceship are doing, then the allocation to growth assets is probably going to be quite similar. The, the bigger difference is going to be that because Spaceship have got this very large exposure to technology companies, which by default has to be international equities because we don't do that in Australia, right? They're going to have a much larger weighting to international equities. So, look, I, I for one, you know, often talk to, to our clients about the risks in equity markets given where valuations are. So there is clearly a risk that, that the fund itself could fall. Um, if, if equity markets fall, it almost certainly will. I, I don't think it'll fall any worse than the average growth fund, though. Um, so I think that's got to be, you know, got to be kept in mind. Um, you know, broadly speaking, I, I think it's really good what they've tried to do. I think, um, I think it's excellent the, the level of engagement they've got. Um, I, I actually know of a couple of other smaller super funds that have been out trying to raise funds, and they've got much bigger organic subscriber bases, and they've raised way less than $100 million. So I think that it's, you know, considering how unengaged Australians are with super, getting people to commit to rolling 100 million bucks in is no, is no small feat. So I think they deserve some congratulations there. Um, but as I say, I, I think, look, if equity markets fall over, then of course the fund is going to struggle. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Dave, I don't know what you think about it, but. Oh, look, it's, um, it's a high risk strategy uh, and it's designed for young people uh, to go and capitalize on growth and most of the stocks that they're, uh, they're projected to go and invest in are gross stocks. Um, I'm, from a general perspective, and not necessarily about our spaceship, I'm just concerned about the distinct lack of, uh, of fixed interest in these, uh, in these superannuation accounts uh, and super funds. Uh, I like to, I like in high quality bonds and high quality investment grade corporate bonds as like ballast in a ship. So when you have big market swings, that's kind of your ballast. Um, that's something that I think is Particularly with Spaceship, it's obviously a much more aggressive strategy, but just superannuation funds in general, they're too light in that aspect. Um, I think when you compare it to, like you say, in a lot of countries in Europe, etc., uh, I'll call out those numbers from ASFA, right? So there's 20, 21% Australian and international fixed interest in, in all of that pool, um, which is 1.5 trillion thereabouts, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, but if you look at um, a lot of European companies, um, you'd be looking at an allocation to fixed interest closer to 30 um, or above in some countries. Higher. In most cases, you'll find it's higher. Um, another thing, too, you've got to go and take into consideration is the annual fees and, uh, and what, what clip gets taken on. Now, this is essentially an ETF product from what I understand. Um, the cynic in me says, just go and, uh, go and buy a, a NASI ETF, allocate 50% of your funds to that, allocate 50% of your funds to, uh, to ASX 200 ETF, uh, and I gather the fees will probably be significantly lower. Because this has definitely been a talking point with Spaceship. Uh, fees are 1.6, 1.7% plus a $78 yeah. management fee. Uh, with your uh, run-of-the-mill super fund, uh, it's often a fraction of a percent uh, in fees. Yeah, I think, um, I, I, I can't remember who it was that did the study, but it was a couple of years ago and it went, went into a submission to the Financial Services Council. And I think that they found that the average super fund outside of SMSFs the average super fund was charging about 1.2. So, I mean, obviously there are some industry funds and my super products out there now which are, are even cheaper. Um, so yeah, look, Spaceship is, is clearly not out there trying to compete on fees. I think that's a, that's a fairly obvious thing. Um, but they've, they've created a niche product. Like, Dave, your point about 
you know, buying a few ETFs to get exposure to these sectors yourself is, is absolutely 100% relevant. But the reality is 95% of young Australians don't have the time or the inclination to actually manage their own super. So they are looking for, if they're going to look for anything, they're going to look for a one-stop shop that invests in the sorts of things they want exposure to. So, you know, these guys have they've created a niche product. They've said, here's what our target is. They're not saying it's for older people about to enter retirement. They're saying this is for young people who want a tech-focused growth portfolio for their super for the next 30 or 40 years. If, if you ask me, choose between a growth fund being run by one of the major banks or one of the major industry funds or Spaceship, and I only had a choice of two, I'd choose Spaceship any day of the week. Yeah, and look, I think that's a really um, uh, great um, comment because I think one of the um, issues for the super industry has been just this, um, frankly, laziness in, in communicating and, you know, what is their investment strategy? Because they'll talk about, well, we've got a high growth and we've got, you know, medium risk and then we've got a low risk for later on in your career. Like, Christ's sake, where are you putting the money? Yeah. Uh, wh- you know, who is making these decisions? What is your investment philosophy? Um, like, why do you prefer one stock over another? Or are you just, to David's point, are you just buying an index? Because that might be fine too. You know, um, so just buy an ETF and, and that might be okay. But um, if you've got a more discerning uh, a person out there who thinks, actually, you know what, I wouldn't mind owning with my retirement savings a bit of these few companies with some of my a little corner of my retirement savings. Uh, I think that's even spaceship starting that discussion uh, is, uh, I think, very healthy. And and if it causes, and I'm sure there will be conversations in the boards of super funds uh, and at the executive level in the super funds at the CEO CIO uh, level, they'll be thinking about, you know, how do we? Yeah. What a, what a great opportunity for the super industry in the country to go and come up with a program or an app or something on those lines that goes and makes it much more transparent. Uh, I know probably a lot of you who are listening have probably seen the Acorns app- application. Uh, it's a fairly similar type of uh, product, but it gives you a breakdown of what they're investing in and, and how much it is, and you can go and switch between various portfolios. I think it's an absolute monster to be made if someone can go and do that correctly for super. No, Acorns is one thing, like your spare change, it comes out of your bank account from like doing a transaction. Superannuation account, 9.5% each, uh, each month. Ching straight into that. What a marketplace! Yeah, yeah. What? A, yeah, an amazing marketplace. Yeah, nine and a half percent of their salary paid. I think at the end of the day, the super industry's got two trillion dollars in it, and by law, it gets nine and a half percent of every Australian's income. It it can handle a little bit of competition. I think is a is a reasonable statement to make. And actually, you know, you mentioned earlier, Paul, that obviously Mike Cannon Brooks from Atlassian has put has, has tipped his money in, and is obviously a, a you know a, a public champion of the product, as it were. Talking about getting Australian superannuation money more productively invested and actually helping fund the next round of Australian entrepreneurs and uh, and the like, you know, I think one of the saddest things is that you know when you think of a company like Atlassian had to go list of, offshore, had to go raise money offshore, right? We've got the, one of the largest pension pools in the world, the Aussie super industry. We're one of the most wealthy countries on earth. Yet, for whatever reason, capital is not finding its way to Australian entrepreneurs. And if that's another conversation that gets started as a result of this product, then that's a fantastic thing for the Aussie economy as a whole. That may be reversing back to the side of our conversation, the podcast, where capital is going to. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's great. Look, 
Uh, it's going to be very interesting to follow. Um, we might even get the spaceship guys uh, on the podcast at some point. Uh, that'll be uh, really fun. Um, so if you're out there, guys, um, the offer's open. Uh, okay, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, David Scott has been uh, here with us, uh, as always, after a um, wild sort of uh, day on, on the markets. Dave, thanks for uh, uh, dropping in and making the time. Pleasure as always, and uh, I'm looking forward to grabbing some lunch, whatever's left the Skerricks downstairs. And our guest uh, from ABC Bullion, gold, gold, gold contributions, uh, Jordan Alicio, uh, Chief Economist over there at ABC Bullion. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Pleasure, guys, anytime. You can find us on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review on the web at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. We are also all on Twitter individually. Jordan Alicio, David Scott and myself, Paul Colgan. The show has been produced by Rick Salter and we'll talk to you next week. episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.